This is Byron Warner, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello and welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. I'm Ilya Friedman. I am Ben Rock. And we have a kick-ass episode today for you, cinematographer Byron Warner, who, if you're somebody who's... I I know we don't get into the weeds with tech very much, but if you're someone who wants to find, like, perfect little apps and tricks and tips about creating your vision and managing your vision, listen closely to Byron. I think he's giving us some of the best information anyone's ever given us on that topic. We got to see some of this stuff, too, after the the interview, and it's really incredible. And uh, we're going to include some of it downloadable, he said. That's right. Uh, so we'll have some cool stuff in the show notes coming yeah, up. Yeah, so, so people can uh, download it. So, Ilya, what do you want to talk about for our George Foyt close focus segment today? You know, uh... We're both 40-something dudes who've been in this industry. For now. <laughs> for now. Yeah, we not for it. long for me. Yeah, it's, it's I know, not, not too long. You'll be, you'll be joining the, the 50-somethings. We're so. Gen Xers. We're yeah, Gen Xers. True. We're uh, all uh, tatted up and uh, loving the Nirvana. Anyway. <laughs> hey. Wearing our chucks and all punk rocky. Anyway. Uh, we're keeping it real over here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, no corporate sellouts. So- one of the big topics of discussion, I feel like we, we have uh, more and more revolves around social media. It involves, you know, some sort of uh, social network or some sort of app or some sort of thing. And being Gen Xers, uh, maybe it's not uh, intuitive of like where you should be or what you should be doing or how you are promoting what you're doing. Uh, there are now, it uh, seems like a number of these social media places, social well, networks specifically for this industry the the thing about being in our specific generation is we remember when there was no internet or no, yeah it was none of this there were no websites and then one day there was like six there was like <laughs> there was like the internet movie database and, and it was they, like holy crap because like i can't say enough how on basically a probably daily basis it gets used I, i'm i'm personally on the on the internet movie database and if you think that people in the business aren't using uh, IMDb on a regular basis, like, you know, when you're in casting and someone says, hey. What about so-and-so? Yeah. The first thing you do is you look them up and you see what have they done? What were they in? And and that goes for DPs. That goes for cinematographers, production designers, directors. Uh, goes for everybody. That's true. And uh, you and I, uh, off mic before we started, we're talking about IndieWire, which is now owned by Variety. You informed me. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, for, for quite some time, it looks like. Yeah, who, who, of course, is owned by PMC, which is a massive, massive media conglomerate. But uh, IndieWire, I remember, started out in the 90s, and they were, like, you know, covering small film festivals. And at that time, things like Ain't It Cool News, which I think is still around, hmm. but Harry Knowles kind of went from being, like, a geek in his basement to being a giant megastar journalist to uh, again being a geek in his basement at the moment but you know imdb and indiewire any cool news like all of these things kind of came out of sheer grit and people figuring out how how to put these things on the internet and now obviously uh, a, a lot of them have apps that run on your phone 
but also they serve a lot of purposes within the industry and people within the industry really do use them. Yeah. And there's other sort of, I would say, more uh, recent dedicated platforms for this sort of thing. Like I'm thinking Stage 32. I've never heard of Stage 32. What's that? Stage 32, they claim to be a Linda meets LinkedIn for film, television, theater creatives. At least that's what they credit Forbes as saying about them. I'm currently downloading it. Okay. They have a half million film, television, theater creatives from around the world. Mm -hmm. And it says it ranges from student to Academy, Emmy, and Tony Award winners. Theater, you say? That's what it says. Uh, And this very very well may be true. But uh, are you on there? I signed up a while ago and I have to admit I don't really use it. So I was going to ask, and you know, maybe this is a great question for our our listeners out there. Is there a social network that you feel like you get a lot out of that is not necessarily like a Facebook or an Instagram, which tends to be about uh, maybe connections or um, self-promotion? LinkedIn is kind of that, you know. It is. That's business related, though. I feel like it's like very, very specifically this is, is business, but maybe... I, I don't know. Maybe there's something else out there that uh, helps filmmakers, professionals, uh, theater people, you know, realize their their passions. Well, there are things like uh, I know I've talked about it on here. Uh, Upwork, which sure. a, f- a friend of mine when I was freelancing at Disney, uh, a guy I know they're named uh, Cameron told me, like, check out Upwork. And I've actually gotten some editing jobs on Upwork. In fact, this week alone, I was working on two of them. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty interesting place because. I put myself up there as an editor. I put up my reel. I put up, you know, like a little profile. Didn't didn't spend that much time. But then you go through and have to apply for jobs, and you basically have to pitch yourself for jobs. But if you're looking for video editing, and frankly, videography, there's a lot of those things that kind of come across. Uh, you'll find a lot. And like one of the people who I worked for is a producer named John Corey, who you might know from. He was the producer of Forks Over Knives, the documentary. Mm. Oh yeah. He also uh, did the movie with Dwayne Johnson called The Rundown. He was a producer on that. And he hired me. He was doing some educational modules for Cornell that were like environmentally uh, conscious. Uh, they have they have a sustainability certificate program. And so I was like, it was actually really interesting. I'm editing, you know, professors talking about environmental stuff. And, you know, as fill-in work between kind of the, the bigger projects that I do, it was pretty good. Another one that we were talking about earlier, and I know we've mentioned it on the podcast before, is ShareGrid. And ShareGrid is, I think, pretty much nationwide now. I know it's in a lot of cities, and it's a place where, like, if you own some gear, you can list your gear on ShareGrid, and people can rent it from you, and they even have insurance people can buy on ShareGrid. And, you know, if your stuff gets damaged, in theory, the insurance will cover it as well as other insurance might cover it. But There are some uh, not-so-great stories that have come out of people who have rented their gear on ShareGrid. I think they've made some changes now. They're trying to, I think, re-up their, their image. But I've talked to a number of people who had bad experiences in one way or another. So like any social network, uh, especially one that might be transactional, you'll you want to make sure that you really vet the people that you're Well, you're I sort of feel like it's like the Uber of or the Airbnb of anything and so like air you know airbnb do you want to do that though with your gear for an important job that you're doing is that like is that well like i and again i know i told you this off mic before we we started uh, going but i bought like kind of a relatively inexpensive small light kit and the day i bought it i put it up on ShareGrid just to see because i never i've rented other stuff from ShareGrid. i've never rented my own stuff on ShareGrid. tell tell our listeners how much you, you made for that rental uh, very little. I made about $11 for a light kit that costs about $200. But that's on me because I, I basically put it at like the lowest level that you could rent it at. I could have said, you know, $50,000 a day. Of course, I would have gotten nothing ever. 
But I was like, I wanted to kind of dip my toe in that world and say like, okay, can I, what can I get? And this is not, and your loss wasn't going to be that, that much if it, uh, if it came back to you destroyed. Yeah. If they, if they threw these off of the top of a building and destroyed them, then I'm out 200 bucks. And in theory, their insurance should hopefully cover it. But regardless, share grid is an interesting idea. And I have, uh, as a, as a renter, as a client, I have rented numerous things off of ShareGrid, and I've always had a good experience. We we work with a lot of professional rental companies and professionals, and uh, the idea of getting their entire package from some sort of uh, sharing Uber of gear uh, scares a lot of producers. And I think that it's not... Uh, I wouldn't do the whole package that way, although you can like go to someone who rents a truck. But like I think a couple of times I was working with George Foyt, actually, and he wanted an M80. And so uh, I went on ShareGrid and I found one the first time actually was literally on the street that I live on less than a mile from my house. Hmm. And the other time it was, uh, you know, closer to like Silver Lake. But uh, in both instances, the lights, the light was great. The person I was renting it from basically was running a professional rental business in both cases. Both both of them were production companies. M80 that is an, ex, an expensive item, so that's not uh, that doesn't surprise me that they were more professionals than. Yeah, yeah. Than, than I mean, you know, would I want to uh, if I was doing a big shoot? Would I want to like go get every stick of gear that I was going to use for a separate all over person? Town? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like hell. But when you need like one specific thing, it's great. And if you're doing, you know, like the person who rented my kit was doing like a series of interviews, and these lights are basically, in, you know, four small interviews. And uh, they had to do a bunch of interviews and they came, picked him up, you know, dropped him off the next day. And he, here's the, the thing, though, is that uh, and I would say this happened. This has happened with Upwork, with all the people I've worked for on Upwork, especially the people who are local to L.A. And then also for ShareGrid is like now I know these people like it's actually expanding my network in an interesting way. For instance, John Corey, the guy who uh, who I did the Cornell thing for, you know, he does bigger documentaries. I don't know that I'm going to be useful to him or he's going to be useful to me in a professional way, but he's in my network now. I would say we're friends now. And uh, I think that that value actually goes beyond just the transaction of here's some damn lights or, here, you know, here's some editing stuff. A lot of the stuff I've done on Upwork as, edit, as an editor was for somebody across the country who I never met. They sent me some files. I edited some crap. I sent it out to them. You know, they, they, I like it is called the work that you were doing crap. Uh, yes, <laughs> I don't mean it that way, but, uh, but you know what I mean? A lot, a lot of times it's, uh, you know, I don't want to kiss and tell who my clients are, but it's like something as simple as like a webcast that they need some simple graphic work done or some minor, minor stuff cut out of. It's not, uh, you know, real edit. It's not going on my editing reel. But yet you were able to turn it into some dollars. I was able to make a little bit of money, but also like now these are people that I know. And uh, specifically like John Corey and some of the other clients who I've worked for within L.A., like those people and most of the people who are doing this kind of stuff in L.A. are serious filmmakers. And the, the dirty secret is a lot of us when we're between jobs, we do commercials or we do industrials or we do whatever it is that it takes. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting when you meet people on LinkedIn or something like that in real life and you meet them in an uh, in a capacity which is not what they're advertising or billing themselves yeah. as. And then uh, and God, I was I was at the deli inside Whole Foods yesterday and uh, I started talking to the guy next to me and wouldn't you know, it's Los Angeles. Wouldn't you be surprised? The person was an actor. And so they were telling me all about their their, oh, their acting stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, not just well. And uh, well, in linked in the case of LinkedIn, actually, like I've met very few new friends on there. But this one uh, guy named Nick Peter who's not very far from me, who's a music video director, sent me a message on LinkedIn. He's like, I want to actually meet one of these people that I've met on LinkedIn. So you want to meet me for coffee? And, 
now you know we we talk on a you know we talk we talk here and there and uh we show each other our, our projects and stuff and uh i you know i i think that you can use those things but i i think that Sometimes it helps you to break the ice in ways that if you were at a party with that person, you wouldn't walk up and start talking to them necessarily. <laughs> I'm about to say something self-deprecating, but instead I'll say, yeah, Ben, I, I would not walk up to you and say hello. So, no. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I'm so sad now. No, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it, it offers a, uh, a digital icebreaker, so to speak. But uh, there's no substitution at, absolutely to meeting that person in real life and actually having a genuine human interaction and then finding if there is synergy in ways that you can work together in the future. Absolutely. But I think, you know, a lot of these a lot of these sites allow you to cut right through the crap and be like, here's the person for the job that I'm looking for and, uh, or, or whatever it is. Um, and you know, even things like IMDb or IMDb pro, which, uh, I reluctantly signed up for, but I actually see a lot of value in it. Mm. Those things which have been around have actually kind of grown. It's, in, you know, it's interesting is the ones that go away, like without a box. Oh yeah. Like without uh, a box. Filmmakers Alliance had a thing too for a moment. But yeah. Yeah. But, uh, like without a box revolutionized the way people submit films to film festivals and then Film Freeway came along and kind of just did it a little bit easier and a little bit better, but not significantly. And and without a box was ate they, their lunch. Was was both they were both yeah. going for a while. And without a box had been bought by IMDb, which I think is owned by Amazon. Yes, that's right. So uh, and I guess at a certain point they were like, yeah, this isn't profitable anymore, and they shut the whole operation down, which I thought was a little sad. Yeah, uh, it, it's amazing how many giant sort of enterprise level sites and things that Amazon owns like uh, there's a still photo primarily still photo review site called DP review uh-huh. owned by Amazon it's like it's it's not apparent anywhere but you do figure it out if I'm you, not going to say anything negative about Amazon because I'm working on a project for audible and that is owned, <laughs> by, owned by Amazon owned by Amazon that's yeah. right so uh, b- before you know it yes they were they're the largest online retailer accounting for 50 percent of all online transactions now yeah there's there's a good chance that uh, many of and, and I think that for a lot of streaming services like uh yeah Amazon Canopy Web or services, whatever like they're yeah. they're just using their because like it's funny if you go to like if you watch a movie on canopy versus shutter versus the, there's a lot of these services where it's like the interface looks shockingly similar to the to the other ones and you're like hmm i wonder if they're all using the same service hey you know uh just as a a quick aside i have a relative who works for a currently works for a library and does accounting and uh got to see the bills of which the what the library pays for their uh canopy uh oh because like yeah the public library is actually paying out money for all the streams uh, he just said it was a lot. I actually don't know, but he said Interesting. it was. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize that. But all those, those, all those things which may be free to you, somebody's paying for it. Maybe it's our tax dollars. But yeah, the libraries—they're not getting it for free. So side side note yeah. on on uh, speaking of canopy, if anyone is interested in the great courses, mm, if yeah, you've ever yeah. heard of the great courses, uh, uh, it's all on canopy now for free. I don't think all of it, a lot of it, but not all of it. I, I mean, like thousands of their courses are on canopy for free. Uh, I was watching, God, I'm such a nerd. I was watching a thing on the science of time. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, it, that didn't appear to be on there, but I found it on Amazon and paid the money to watch it on Amazon. <laughs> anyway. So uh, if you're listening to us and you work in the business and there's a website you like that you use for your work, we'd love to hear about it. We'll read your email or your tweet or whatever, however you communicate it to us on our next episode, because I uh, this connects, I think, seriously to, to Byron Warner, who we're about to listen to his interview. Because um, he is doing really clever, cutting edge stuff that 
frankly, I did. I've never met another DP doing this. Yeah, we're we're using technology in interesting ways. And Byron, already since the interview, I've kind of worked some of the stuff that he talked about into uh, my uh, my rotation of stuff I use. So uh, it's very exciting. And I, uh, Byron is a great guy. Uh, everybody listening to this, check out his upcoming movie, The Last Full Measure, with every giant movie star you've ever heard of in it. And uh, without further ado, here is Byron Warner. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. I am here at Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank with Byron Warner, I think possibly the most prolific cinematographer we've ever had on the show, featuring a staggering 122 cinematography credits. Wait, it's 123. You shot something since I started that sentence. How's it going? Thank you so much for coming out. It's going great. Thank you for having me here. I don't know if having that many credits is a good thing or a bad thing. They don't really take credits off. If it's something <laughs> that you, uh, you know, shot a long, long time ago. Yeah, well, yeah, but I, I mean, like, I sort of feel like don't ever turn your back on this on the stuff that made you who you are. Like, it, it makes more sense to me to kind of embrace the the earliest stuff you worked on because you know that in a way that was like when you didn't even really know what what the whole business was going to be like. But that's 122 cinematography credits. It's not like you you know you have you know 50 uh, camera uh, utility credits or something, and then you got into cinematography. It's 122 cinematography credits, and granted, a lot of them are like music videos or shorter form stuff. But seriously, you've been doing this for a long time and you have been doing a lot of it. <laughs> I have. I mean, I, I uh, came out of college and I just started shooting. And I think that nowadays that may be a little more of the norm, especially with digital cameras and the mm-hmm. ability just to kind of come out and shoot. But when I came out, it wasn't the norm and I was really, really poor and I was answering <laughs> Craigslist ads and trying to shoot short films and feature films for like $50 a day or maybe gas money. And so a lot of oh, those man. credits came from that, but that's where I cut my teeth and uh, learned how to be a DP. So, uh, you know, the question I always ask, you, you have listened to the podcast, so I don't have to go through the whole spiel, but the question I always start off with is that composition versus lighting thing. When you read a script and you're looking at a script, what is it that you see in your head? It's lighting. It always goes to lighting. I mean, I I definitely, uh, after I've read a few pages, I stop for a second usually, and I think about sometimes about composition, (laughs) usually about aspect ratio, but really like, yeah, I don't know why, but it's like a thing, especially if it's a movie. I I don't know. I just, I walk me through the thing. Like, I mean, like as you're just getting used to an idea of what a movie is, you're already thinking, you know, widescreen, 16 by 9. I guess. I just kind of want to know in my head. Like, I just want to think about what the framing is going to be like. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily like whether you're going to use wide lenses or long lenses or things like that. But I just kind of like to think about, you know, yeah, whether it's widescreen or whether it's 185 or, you know, it, just just to have it in my head. It's not like a real conscious decision that it's like, okay, it has to be this way. It's just like, yeah. what am I feeling? And then I kind of start thinking that way, I guess. But really, I mean, I do think about the lighting first and foremost. It's just something that comes to me. It's really, really important. I feel like for me to have a point of view, oftentimes it comes from a lighting standpoint. And then the camera and definitely the lenses and, and all that can come a little bit later and oftentimes after meeting a director and talking about it but the lighting I like to come in to a meeting or I like to come out of the script having some sort of idea Mm -hmm. how does that take form so I mean maybe walk me through a project of yours that you've worked on and sort of how how that idea built well I think that 
you know, I, I read a script for the first time. I, like I said, I think a little bit of as, aspect ratio. I like to think about lighting as I go through. But for the most part, I'm just trying to get used to the script. Mm-hmm. So then um, after I've read it once, then I'll, pro- I'll usually go back and I will read it again. And that's where, funny enough, I actually look at a little more of the character and what the movie's about. <laughs> so I know a lot of people do it the other way around. It's really important to them. Like, what is the movie saying to me? What is the character? You know, what is the, yeah. what is the story? But for me, I, I, I think that I like to choose movies based on the visual first. And so I, I think about that first. And then, and then I come back to the other one. You know, I come back to the story and all that on, on the second pass. And you know, as you're looking at it and kind of thinking in terms of character and character arcs or whatever, what are the thoughts that are going through your head that kind of manifest in your in, in, in your production plan? Like how, when you decide to plan out how you're going to do it, what are the criteria that are kind of going through your head? Yeah, I mean, well, my process right now, and, and it obviously as I gain more experience and I change, uh, my process changes, but really um, what I like to do is I like to put together a lookbook almost right away. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I'll put it together before I go into a meeting with a director. Like if I really, really want the movie, the way for me to do it is I I need to read the script. I need to have you know, visuals in my mind, but then I, I really need to go through, I have banks of images and of course you can go on Google and find images everywhere. Mm -hmm. I need to put those into, you know, I make a keynote presentation and I, and I, and I put into categories. So I'll put like, you know, lighting, camera, framing, camera movement, like, you know, any type, any type of thing I can think of. And then oftentimes I'll even take the characters and put their names and start assigning uh, pictures to, to their, you know, to either to their character or to, you know, any aspect of the movie. So I, I like to do that. It doesn't mean that I'm going to show that to the director the first time I meet them, yeah. but I like to have it myself so that I kind of have a clear visual sense because I feel that that's the only way or the best way for me to really get it out of myself and get it, you know, I, I like to put it on paper. I'm a very organized person. So that's cool. And then you use keynote specifically. That's, that's, that's amazing. I do just cause I'm an Apple guy. I use keynote and it's one of those things where, you know, we all want to be artists and I consider myself an artist, but I'm also, you know, I feel like also as a filmmaker, your, your job is to not only be an artist, but you also have to consider the nuts and bolts of making movies. And so in terms of, um, you know, I have my lookbook, but then once that's done, I actually, now what I like to do is make a visual Bible. So I'll take each scene and I'll put a keynote page to it and I'll just start throwing notes on it and I'll take some of my images, but then sometimes I just put keywords. Sometimes if I get, once I get the job and we're scouting, I'll start putting scout pictures or I'll just start, if anything comes in my mind, I just throw it on that page. And so, um, you know. I'm curious why keynote and why not like just a document? Well, I think for me, the, the reason that I use keynote is uh, as silly as it sounds is I can, you know, take a, a little box and I could put a color in there. And if the scene has blue screen or green screen out a window or something, I may put a little box. If I am picturing like sunlight coming through windows, I may, I may put a little silly uh, sun icon or take a picture. Yeah. Or, you know, if I if I feel like I want fluorescent lighting in a scene, I may take a little picture of, uh, you know, of a fluorescent light and stick it in there. And so I just like it because I can kind of move things around. I can put text, I can put pictures and, and I have the ability to, you know, start, start creating a living, breathing document that hopefully at some point I can share with other members of the crew, whether it's the gaffer or the key grip or, you mm-hmm. know, any, or my ACs or just anybody. Um, sometimes on my last movie, I, I shared everything with the art department. They were using it as a kind of a guide of, you know, what, oh, wow. what I was thinking. And I ended up, um, the great thing about keynote now is too, is that you can, uh, you can share. So you can basically, uh, I can make it something that, uh, I can send a link 
and then anybody can open it either in Keynote or in uh, in any web browser. So at one point, really? the, the, the departments were all like, oh, can we have your document? Can we have your document? Because I would just put everything down. But then they would kind of know, oh, well, here's a picture of the location. Oh, here's the color scheme. Here's a picture they're thinking of. And so we all ended up kind of on the same page using what I called the visual Bible. And it was a pretty cool thing. And I, I don't think I'm going to stop doing it now That's that I know it works so well. Is there any way that you'd be willing to share one of those, like to, to give us one that we could uh, let our listeners check out? Well, the last movie I did, it's not out yet, and that's my best one. <laughs> so, but I have other ones. I mean, yeah, there's, um, yeah. Even if you had one that was, even if you just edited it down so that we saw a few scenes, I think our our listeners would probably be blown away at at like uh, this is something I, I always want to hear is like the the hardcore nuts and bolts. This is the program I use, and this is how I use it, and this is how I I build yeah. the idea out. Because you know, I mean, we've talked to people who use intricate spreadsheets and mm. you know stuff like that and and uh but but to me like an idea like keynote you know which is very much like powerpoint that's just a, a fascinating way because it is it is uh sequential you know it is it is a little bit like watching a movie you're kind of going through slides well that's what i do i try to build the movie and then as you shoot scenes you can just get rid of your notes and just put screen grabs of the movie and then you can see you know when you're going into the next week like oh the scene before it here's what we shot here's the next scene of what we're doing and here's the scene after we already shot and you can kind of see how it works so yeah i mean absolutely that is so um, brilliant well if, again if, if uh you decide yeah, you don't to. want to share one that's okay but I, I think that our listeners and me personally i would love to kind of see how yeah. you organize uh something like this because well, n- nowadays too it's amazing because um everything can be digital I've, my last two movies i didn't even use any paper so it's like i keep it on the ipad so now you have this bible and then you have your script which i use scriptation i'll give them a shout out the most amazing program ever what what is scriptation it's a uh script uh basically a script software that you can put on your ipad and you can have your script on there and you can make all kinds of notes and you can put pictures in it and you can add like blank pages so you can put you know notes on that but the most amazing thing of all which trumps everything else is when you get a new draft it automatically transfers your notes what yes so you just hit a button it takes 10 seconds and you know oh here's the blue draft well my notes just transferred over it's immediate and it's unbelievable i got my whole last crew on it because like the art director was like or the production designer she's like oh yeah i have to have my uh, person you know my assistant transfer all the notes i was like oh no just do it do it in scriptation showed her press a button boom done sold yeah I'm, guess what i'm doing as soon as we're done with this you should download I that app totally it's, it's unbelievable no i would use that i always love uh, I, I love those kinds of apps that, 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 you know, work like that. The one I'm always talking about that, you know, almost no one <laughs> has heard of, but some people have, is a Shot Designer, which is just like a super fast way to build overheads. So I use Shot Designer as well. So I, I build stuff in Shot Designer. And then oftentimes what I do is in my Bible, I'll have built everything in Shot Designer. And then I'll actually just copy that into the Bible onto one of the pages. And so you'll be able to see, you know, location pictures. You'll be able to see my overhead plot. You'll be able to see, you know. Wow. Uh, my my references all that kind of stuff you're, so i actually use all those programs and basically making together. an ikea manual for how to build the movie it, that's exactly right yeah and if i mean you know, if i was hit by a bus or something they could still make the movie <laughs> they could finish it absolutely they don't they don't need me after that thing's done okay so since uh, since you use shot designer and again like i don't know that we've ever had anyone on here who uses it how do you use it like like what what are the, do you use all the animation and all the storyboard attachments and all that sometimes stuff? It, uh, it all depends i mean what i definitely do is i like to if it's really early on i will take a room you know whatever the locations we already have it and i'll draw out the room with their walls and their doors and whatever yeah. else if we're farther along in production, then I have the art department give me the director's plans and I lay everything on the director's plans. 
and it's it's awesome because what what I'll generally do with a director if they if they like to do overhead plots or that that's their way of doing things I say okay just sit with me for a minute because directors are always busy it's like they have they have a million things to yeah. do so they don't need to spend all this time in my opinion getting well first of all they don't need to get everybody up to speed why don't they just get me up to speed so oftentimes I'll try to sit with them and be like here let's just hash them out let's just write them down just do them really crude and then what I do is I go into shot designer and then I transpose them into there because number one it's looks good and it's great for everybody to see number two is i'm the type of person that if i write it down it gets in my head it's easier yeah. for me to memorize so i like to take the crude drawings and put it into there and so i yeah i basically i put everything in there and then if there's storyboards i will attach them for sure so that they're all the little lines to where the shots are and i try to use it as much as i can because i feel like it just it, it offers so many different ways to communicate to you know with your director and with the rest of the crew in in your experience uh how deeply into the weeds do the directors get with this bible that you're building do they do they look at it and go right on or are they like sitting in there with you being like no let's move the camera you know mm. over here or? yeah no i think with the bible and it's in itself funny enough i don't think they they look at it and they're like this is awesome but they don't get in the weeds at all i think they're like the one person on set that doesn't really ever use it or look at it but mm. everybody else does so because what i what my goal with with making a visual bible is to take everything that the director tells me or that we discuss and put it on paper so that nothing's forgotten so i can remember it i mean and obviously once you get on set you may throw out a lot of it just like yeah. anything else like you could with storyboards you know you have your spontaneity i don't think it hurts any of the creative process but just having it there and knowing you can always fall back on it and and to be able to have you know the props person be able to you know see kind of what you're doing and what the you know you know what's your uh, what what the references are and have the art art department do that and even you know it's like everybody seems to be able to use it even the ads are like oh can we have that for the day because then they kind of know where the shots are and oh yeah so it, so to me in the end it kind of works as a visual reminder to everybody and it also works as a shot list so it's uh, it's to me it's a really great way to just kind of keep everything in one place. It's basically a binder, but it's digital. Yeah, and it's, and it's amazing to me that there isn't sort of a codified way that the business does this. Like, you know, we have specific apps and stuff for script supervisors or whatever, but I sort of feel like a lot of us are just kind of lost in a in, in either paper or, you know, a Evernote notes or trying to organize Dropbox folders or whatever. But to ha I, I definitely am excited to see how you do this because I feel like this is the kind of thing that, any filmmaker could probably wrap their heads around and also do it their own, you know, customize it to to suit their needs. So we talked really briefly. Uh, we touched about on, on your film school or on your school. Did you go to are you a film school person? Did you go to film? I school? went to Chapman University. Yeah. Oh, they've got a great program at Chapman. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They definitely do now. And I think they did when I was there, but it was definitely, you know, more in the inception. So, uh, you know, they didn't have now they have these huge studios and all, you know, yeah. tons of cool cameras and all that. And they didn't have any of that when I was there. It was like a little building. Yeah. But yes, it was a definitely a, it was a good place to go to school. So like when did it spark to you that cinematography specifically was the was the path for you? Was it before you went to film school? Was it while you were there? It was like my first class where I took a cinema, like an introduction to cinematography class. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, oh, this is what I want to do. Because I, I always thought, oh, I want to be a director. I want to hold the camera. And I didn't know anything about lighting, really. But, you know, it's like I, I just I thought that that's what, a, you know, I thought a director does basically what a cinematographer does. So once yeah. I realized, oh, this is what it is, you know, this is what a cinematographer does, I was drawn to it. And, and I think the lighting in particular was something I was definitely drawn to right away. 
which I didn't even know was a thing. I, I mean, I don't know. I know there's some people now or people that were like huge film fans that come out of high school just knowing so much. Like for me, I had used a video camera. I had made stories. I had done like everybody else does, but I wasn't like a huge cinephile. So I didn't really kind of understand the nuts and bolts of it. But I'm like, oh, I want to go to film school. This sounds like an awesome career. And then mm -hmm. I get there and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a cinematographer. So, so you're at Chapman and you applied to and got into the film program, obviously. So you had some inclination to, to move in that direction. Absolutely. No, I definitely wanted to do film hundred um, percent. I was, uh, I was always into, you know, I had like a super eight camera or, or video eight or whatever, you know, shooting on the little camcorder and yeah. I would make videos with my siblings and my friends and things like that. So I definitely wanted to, uh, I wanted to do it for sure. But I, I just, I think I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't really understand the process of filmmaking. I just thought the sound of making movies was really a great way to make a living. <laughs> so when you uh, were a Chapman, like what, what kind of cameras and stuff were they uh, throwing at you to work with at that point? I mean, we start, when we started out in our first like freshman class, you had to use like those video eight cameras on tape. But then oh, really? after that, it was all 16 millimeter for mm -hmm. the most part. I mean, they didn't have, um, when I went there, I graduated in 1998. So there really wasn't the, you know, the digital cameras that there are today. I mean, at that time it was like you shot on 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, a camcorder, or there was like beta cam, but that was it. So mm -hmm. there wasn't a ton of options. Uh, I mean, at that time, 16 millimeter, I was like, Ugh, you got to shoot on 16. Everybody wants to shoot 35. And now people would kill to shoot on 16. I know. <laughs> I know a filmmaker uh, named Joe Begos who recently made two movies, but the first one, which already came out, was called Bliss. And I remember him talking, and he's he's a younger guy, and this is going to loop back around to someone you know, used to be Stuart Gordon's personal assistant. And uh, he was all excited that he shot this movie on 16 millimeter. He's like, I'm never going back to digital. And I was like, rock on. <laughs> you can afford it and you can get people to pay for it. It's great. I for mean, real. I, I like 16 millimeter. No, I, I, I love the look of film, but, uh, but yeah, it, 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 for me obviously has become less of a priority. I'd rather put all that money into something. Well, else. I agree with that too. I mean, I think a lot of DPs, or I don't know if a lot of them, but I've heard people that's like, oh yeah, you know, film is so pure. I have to shoot on film. I'd love to shoot on film. Yeah. Film is great. I love film, but I also love digital cameras. I love the yeah. fact that you don't have to stress about the lab reports. I love the fact that, you know, you can see everything right there. I like the yeah. fact that they're, you know, sometimes more light sensitive. So, I, I mean, I can't complain about being able to shoot with some of the best, you know, airy digital cameras and things like that. So, I mean, what, it, you're, For me, you're when still they got telling the, stories. When whatever. they got the wider sensors, when they were able to have like regularly at least super 35 sensors and when they got above 800 ISO, I was like, okay, this is competing for my affection for sure, you know? Yeah, I totally agree with that. So uh, you were kind of saying that like right out of school, you were doing Craigslist, you know, picking up jobs, shooting. So so kind of what what kind of shape were you in right out of film school? Like what, like had you made a lot of relationships where, uh, you know, Chapman's close enough to L.A.? How, how steeped in the business were you at that point? And, and what was your uh, process of kind of establishing yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did, it's not like I had a bunch of connections of people in L.A. and that, you know, directors that come out of Chapman that were going to give me jobs and hire me. I mean, I feel like I hear stories about that all the time now. Well, it was um, early days for Chapman, Chapman's film program. Yeah, right? exactly. So, I mean, once I got out of school, I moved from Orange County to, uh, you know, up to the valley. And, mm -hmm. and but it was one of those things where I just I. I I think I just said, you know, I just wanted to shoot. I just didn't want to do anything else. And yes, I, I knew some people and took the occasional PA job or work, you know, grip electric on something to make some money, but I really just wanted to shoot. So I just started shooting. So I would, um, uh, funny enough, I had a, I, I ordered a subscription to Backstage West and I would go on there and like, they would always be looking for non-union actors. So I would send a letter 
to almost every production with a resume. And then, you know, if I sent 100 letters out, I would maybe get like two responses and then maybe send out two VHS reels or whatever. And then maybe <laughs> out of, you know, af after three months or something, I'd maybe get one job. But oftentimes it was a job that, you know, either was free or didn't pay or, or paid just very little. But almost always those jobs in the long run, I met somebody or somebody on it ended up getting me a paid job. So it just kind of started rolling into being able to shoot. But I started out pretty poor. I mean, I think my first year out of college, I probably made like $5,000. I had a bunch of money on credit cards. But uh, to me, it was money well spent just because it wasn't like I was wasting money out drinking or whatever. It was like it was like gas money and, you know, bills and things like that. And I would spend every waking moment that I could trying to shoot something. Well, and to me, that's that's something that I, I always think about. Uh, Ilya and I had a friend, I don't know if, if you knew him or not, uh, named Neil Fredericks, who unfortunately passed away years ago. But Neil, I remember when he moved to L.A., basically was like, I'm just going to be a DP. Every now and then I'll operate for somebody else. But he never did anything else. Like, again, Neil had, I, I think, no AC credits, no nothing, just DP. And um, and I would see some of the other people I knew who were like, I, I think maybe being more pragmatic about it and saying like, well, I want to be able to sleep and eat and put gas in my car, you know, going the uh, union AC route, even though their goal was to be a DP. Mm -hmm. And they can both get there. But you pretty much set your sights on being a DP, correct? That's all I did. I didn't go up through the ranks. And, and I often wonder now, it's like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I, I look at it and I go, so if, you know, did I make the right choice? Like, did did this, I have, whatever you said, a hundred and something credits on 122 IMDb. credits. I just want yeah, to remind it, everyone, 122 <laughs> DP sure, credits. Sure. <laughs> but would I have been better off having less credits and working for other DPs as an assistant and seeing how they do things and working my way up? I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, it's hard to say. Um, but I did choose that path, and 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 it, you know, it was it was it's one that I think in the long run has served me well. And I, it's hard to say what would have happened if I did a different <laughs> way. But I'm glad I did it, and I really, I mean, I've been you know, even those hard small jobs, it's just it's a they're all a grind. But you learn so much on each one, and yeah. I feel like not having toys and lights and the right, you know, having. I mean, I've shot. I can't tell you how many movies I shot on 35 millimeter film with like. 20,000 feet of film like you know we talked about really? the asylum oh yeah I've shot movies for like the early days for like the asylum I bet we got like 20,000 feet of film to shoot a 35 millimeter movie Ugh. with one camera but that but you learn a lot you learn how to I mean, like you're gonna yeah. shoot like a two to one ratio or whatever <laughs> it ends up being and it's like when I was in film school that was our obsession was the the shooting ratios and yeah. for me I was always shooting for that seven to one ratio that meant that I could do three setups in a scene and have one one version that like I, I and I could do two takes of one of them um, but yeah, I mean, to me that the shooting ratio is something that like in the digital world, you just don't even think about cause no. you know, we got memory cards as, as, as long as we need. Um, so you mentioned working for the asylum and I think you might be the first person we've ever had in here who worked for the asylum for, uh, for those of you who don't know who the asylum are, obviously, uh, probably their most famous work is Sharknado, uh, that, that, uh, that series and uh, a million other shark things. And actually uh, one of my good friends, my college roommate, Mark Atkins, has made like a gazillion oh, movies. Yeah, he's done tons. Yeah. He directs, shoots. He does everything. He's, he's, he's still writes, working for them, right? Writes, directs, shoots, and edits. Yeah, That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, Mark's, Mark's a machine. Yeah. So you were working for the asylum back when they had to shoot it on 35 millimeter film, correct? Yes. As a matter of fact, I've never done a movie for the asylum digitally. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I shot like one of their first films. I think it was maybe in 1998 or 99. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, even I think before they were really the asylum. I mean, obviously, before they were what they are now, where they're cranking out all these movies. Um, the first movie I was aware of from them was uh, Stuart Gordon's King of the Ants. 
Yeah, I mean, they did that at the same time as I did. I think it was a movie called The Source. It was like this mm-hmm. teenage movie. And I remember The King of the Ants because I had shot The Source. And then I think that they were doing some pickups on King of the Ants. So I went out and helped and shot some stuff on that because I think at that time they were doing both movies. So if you got a 35 millimeter camera and some film and you need to do pickups on one movie, you're definitely <laughs> going to pick ups on two movies. Did you work with Stuart? I, yes, I did for like one day and I did a few pickups for the movie, but I, you know, it was Stuart's a long like time one of my ago. real life heroes and I, and I've been lucky to work with him on two projects, both theater, but, uh, Stuart's amazing. And actually the lead actor from that movie, Chris McKenna, I've gotten to work with a couple of times and he's, he's just a phenomenal actor and a, and a great guy. But, uh, tell me a, a little bit about your asylum experience. Cause they, like you're saying, they weren't quite what they are now, which right now I feel like they're one of the few companies that has somehow a profitable model for making outrageously low-budget movies. Why it is profitable, I I am befuddled. I know that if I go into Target, I will find $4 Blu-rays that are Asylum movies, and a lot of them are also like made for Sci-Fi Channel and stuff. But uh, what what was your experience working on, on those kinds of films? Because they're sort of like the Roger Corman of their time. Yeah, I mean, I think this was before they had a business model. I mean, now they have stages and an office and they have, um, you know, editorial and and visual effects. But this was, you know, you had a a script and you had a 35 millimeter camera and you had a, you know, crew making next to no money and you go out and make a movie. So I think I can't tell you how many movies I made with those, maybe like two or three before I kind of moved on. But um, one of them was like one of the Bloody Bill films. If I'm not I mistaken. did. Yeah. I did. I did that. Yes. I yeah. did the first one of, of that. Because I think Mark worked on another Bloody Bill thing and invited me out to the set. And I just as soon as I saw that on your resume, I was like, Bloody Bill, where do I know that from? Where do I know that from? Yeah, that was uh, that was the last one I, I did for them. Like and, a horror Western. Yeah, it was like a horror Western. And that one, I funny enough, I directed and shot uh-huh. Uh, which I don't recommend to people, but uh, it was, okay, but it was a good a, experience. <laughs> I have a question about directing and shooting at the same time. Though. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, like one, one day, maybe God willing, we'll get like Peter Hyams or Steven Soderbergh or one of those people who does that all the time. But like if you're directing and shooting, and I'm assuming since it was Asylum, you're probably operating. Uh-huh. 100%. So yeah. how do you bifurcate your brain or trifurcate your brain, if that's a word, to follow performance and story, but also lighting and composition at the same time? Yeah, I don't think you can do them all. So I <laughs> think that's why the movie's not going to be great at all. I mean, I think I don't fi- I don't fancy myself being, you know, I'm not a director. It's like I was a DP and they're like, hey, do you want to direct this too? And you can shoot it. And I'm like, Okay, I mean, why not? I'll try it, and and I, yeah, I don't think it was the. I don't think it's the best idea. So you can't do all that. So I think the movie, for what it is, kind of looks okay. It looks yeah. good, but it's you know, it, it, no, the acting is you know, it's it's not going to be great, and it's and and I I have to take the credit for or take the blame for um, the fact that you know you, you no you can't concentrate on all those things at once and well, it's also crazy as- asylum is, is generally a non-sag uh, situation yeah, so yeah, yeah. and there was some good there were some okay actors in it it yeah. was fine but i think at that time too it's like uh, listen i'm 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 not a director i i le- the experience was a good experience to try to do something like that i've done it a couple times um and i think that it as a dp uh, it's good to be in the director's shoes at least once or twice in your career to, to kind of know what they have to go through yeah so that you have a little better understanding and maybe a little pa- a little better patience for you know their problems because mm-hmm. you know their their problems you know they have to I think if you understand what they what they're dealing with the actors and you know if you can help in any way especially as an operator and you know what if you're looking 
right through the camera and you can you know help them at all or just understand what is what they're going through with with an actor who may be struggling to get the scene right then maybe you're a little more understanding and yeah and you're because sometimes as dp you're just like okay can't, we gotta go or you know can we just can we make the light look great or you know it's not always about that i mean when i was doing the movie phantom with ed harris i mean i had the one of the best lessons of my life i mean ed was doing this amazing scene and I just told the director, I was like, I want to change something. And he was so good in it. And the moment I changed it, we stopped down for like, you know, five minutes or whatever. And we came back. He never got back to the same place. And the director after that was like, you know what? This is this is what happens when that happens. It, this is not more important than what was happening in the scene. And that was a perfect example. And I think, you know, being in a director's shoes and then also going through experience like that, you realize that like, it's, it's about the performance. Like if you don't have that, like who cares if the lighting's good or not? So anyway, being in the director's shoes, I guess can help you a little bit. <laughs> well, and, and you also, you, you brought up Ed Harris, but like in your, in your filmography, you've worked with some amazing, amazing actors. And I know that like DPs and actors aren't, you know, like the, the DP isn't directing the actors obviously, but you're, but I think it takes a great deal of, of uh, trust on the part of, of, of an actor to let someone film them. Have you found it to be different when you're working with, you know, like these high caliber actors like Ed Harris and Samuel L. Jackson and stuff? Well, I mean, I think what's different with working with high caliber actors is just the fact that they, I mean, they get it they nail it they're so good and and everything just you know it's a lot easier to in a sense i think you know from my part to be able to shoot mm-hmm. because they're you know they're so good and <laughs> i mean if you you know you take somebody like ed and um well, you've worked with a few times yeah i've worked with him a couple times yeah and, yeah and and the first time i worked with him you talk about being kind of close to an actor in a sense we we, we shot a russian submarine movie called phantom and we shot it in a real submarine because we couldn't afford oh, to build the whole thing so i was in very was close that? proximity to him it was down at uh, san diego at the yeah. museum there i worked on a movie that no one's ever seen and when i was a makeup artist where we shot on a real battleship and next to it was a real uh submarine and we went into it and those things are like this this room we're in is bigger than the whole submarine and where was this this is in Mobile, Alabama. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, it's probably similar. There's a battleship down there, and then yeah, then there's the little submarine. But um, I think the thing about working with big actors or, or or very experienced actors or the great actors is just that they always bring the best every time. And so to me, it's not about you know the director trying to get a better performance. You know, you get to concentrate on other things. So uh, we'll we'll zoom past Asylum. I know we could probably mm-hmm. talk about Asylum for a while, but like uh, you know, kind of tell me because you know, again, over the course of 122 projects, and a lot of, again, a lot of them are like music videos or shorter form projects. But like, how did you build up to the point where you were again working on something like Phantoms, uh, where you're where you're working with like this A list talent and and stuff that's higher caliber. Yeah, I think I think in terms of building up to being able to do those jobs, it was just it's just a matter of shooting as much as possible and trying to build a reel. Well, I think it's two things: it's building a reel that'll get you the other get you a job, but it's also just building the experience and the confidence to be able to do it. Because when it comes down to it, we all know we can do it. Yeah. But as a DP, a part of your job is really selling that you can do it, whether it's to a studio or to a director or to a producer. And so I was able to get um, Phantom. It was It's an interesting story. I knew somebody and they said, oh, you should meet Todd Robinson. And I met with him and he's, and, and I said, you know, we talked about films, we talked about projects, we talked about stuff he'd done, stuff that I did. And we just really got along well. And then I had said to him, I said, listen, if you ever have a project, 
let me know. I'll just come do it. I mean, if it's paid, not paid or whatever. And then it just happened to be that like a couple months later, he had a music video that he was going to do for like a friend's daughter. And he's like, hey, do you want to shoot this? So I shot it and, and, you know, and I realized at that time it was an audition for something, for something else. So I, you know, put everything into it to do it and um, then ended up getting getting phantom from it. So it's uh, I don't know if that's a combination of hard work and luck or whatever, but it got me in that position. And I never I I had never shot anybody like Ed Harris. I mean, I shot tons of celebrities, but like interviews and sports interviews and things like that, but never, you know, in a narrative situation. Now, when you talk about like kind of building your reel, like, you know, looking at your filmography, you've kind of jumped around in a number of genres. And uh, one of the things I've always noticed about the business, and maybe it's just me, is that like a lot of times if you if someone's looking at you for a job, they want to see that you've already done already the thing that they're looking for. They don't want to be like, oh, you you did a great horror movie, so we'll consider you for this comedy. Like they don't they, they don't they don't do that. Can you talk about what it's like to kind of get your your foot in the door in a number of different genres as you have. Yeah, I think the problem is is that you know there's two things. One is you want to get jobs, so you have to be able to present different kinds of work. You have to be yeah. able to present different types of lighting, things like that. But also I feel like if you're going to put together your website or your reel, you should also present the type of work that you want to do. Yeah. Cuz I I mean I as much as I would do a comedy, I prefer to do something with darker lighting or something with, you know, I, I prefer to do different movies. I prefer to do either a horror movie or a thriller or that. Those are the kind of things I like. I like action. I love doing that stuff. And so I try to present that type of lighting or that kind of work so I can get, get more of that work. But I do find even to this day that it's like, I, you know, on my website, I have, to, you know, I try to put different types of work so that I can also get a comedy or, you know, even recently I was up for some comedy commercials like, Oh, well, you know, can we see some comedy? I haven't really done a lot of comedy. And I started looking through my Vimeo and sending, you know, putting together a bunch of links. I was like, oh, I have done a lot. I just don't necessarily present it yeah. because it's not really where my interests lie or the things that I really love. So do you have multiple reels? So if someone calls you and says like, we want a gritty thriller and you've like, here's my, here's my gritty reel. Do you, do you? Ha- no, I don't. I mean, I have my website. I present on there, but I also have like somebody the other day for a commercial, like, oh, we need some like lifestyle, bright and happy stuff. We don't see it on your website. So I sent them like a Vimeo, you know, one of those little showcases or whatever, yeah. like collections you put together. I was like, well, here's 40 spots that look like that. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's like I have all that stuff. So I keep, you know, I keep like little um, collections of it and I have it on Vimeo where I can put together, you know, a little thing or put it on my website and I can put together, you know, a, a, a private link and send it out. But for the most part, um, I just I try to keep my best stuff, current stuff or stuff that you know, interests me the most. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel that it's going to get me the kind of work that I, that I want to do. Yeah. And with your body of work, I feel like you can sort of pick and choose those things, you know, as much as you want. Cause you, you can sort of cherry pick from the projects that most re- represent what you're looking to do. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I try to do that as much as, as much as possible, but there are, you know, there are situations where, you know, there's a certain director you want to work with, or you're presented with a situation where it's like, oh, well, this is a commercial, but I'm not that interested in what it is, but A, I can make some money. B, Mm -hmm. I like the director and, you know, C, it's just good to be working. So yeah, yeah. yeah, it's nice to choose, but you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes you get the choice, sometimes you don't, but yes, it's, (laughs) it's better than taking everything. 
music videos are another are, are an avenue that obviously you you've spent a lot of time working on a lot of music videos and uh you know you and i i think are roughly the same age meaning we grew up in the 80s and the 90s when music videos were like a giant big deal and then sort of the music video world kind of fell to what you've also kind of said about the the future world where it's like t- teeny tiny budgets and giant massive budgets but you've worked with some pretty big acts. Like, what is the music video uh, environment like? Are, are you still doing a lot of music video kind of work? I mean, I still do them. I spent this last year doing uh, a couple movies. So I, the only music video I did in 2019 was Coldplay for their new album. But that was pretty awesome. That's pretty big. Yeah, and I'm that's... a big fan of oh, their sweet. work. So I, I was very excited to do that. But yeah, music videos are something that I, you know, I continue to want to do as many as possible i feel like you know there's something that there music videos are things that jobs that the crew is kind of like it's a music video we're gonna get killed and we're gonna you know it's we're gonna we're gonna have all this overtime they're gonna take forever but for me they're the type of jobs that are some of the most fulfilling i mean short of of movies because you know you get to experiment you get to work with bands and music and and i always feel like uh, it's just a place where I, I basically experiment and practice for making movies. There's always like cool shots or cool lighting or things that you can just kind of go over the edge and do do something that you wouldn't normally get to do and try it out. So whether it's like trying out like, you know, different lenses or different lighting or anything. It's, I remember it's, back in the day, like I would like there was that period in the 90s where everything was shift and tilt lenses and that it shows up first in music videos and then you start seeing it in commercials and then you start seeing it in movies action movies yeah. and even like the bullet time effect that they used in the matrix i like two years before the matrix there was a there was a music video that used it and they hadn't figured out how to morph between the uh lenses but uh between the cameras but it it still kind of had the it was choppier but you could see like that idea was kind of floating around in, in the ether uh and when you say that you get an opportunity to experiment like what are the kind of cutting edgy experimental things that you enjoy playing with now or what are some of the ones that you've used, you know, recently, I should say? Uh, I mean, well, funny enough, on the Coldplay video, um, we used one of those rotating rooms mm-hmm. so that the camera rotates with the room and it looks like they're dancing on the ceiling, which is old, older technology. You know, they did in the Fred Astaire and, you know, movie yeah. and all that. Um, but, the, you know, that's something I... I, uh, I've never used on a movie. So that's, you know, I know they use stuff like that on uh, Inception and things like that. But, you know, being able to, you know, have the experience to shoot in a room like that. Now, if it comes up on a movie or we need to do something like that or, you know, it's it's something that I've, I've done. So, um, you know, that, that's that's great. And then whether it's like, you know, um, I first used Asteras, like those wireless tube lights, things yeah, like yeah. that, you know, in music videos. And then now I start using in movies and they, you know, they. I just think there's all kinds of different equipment that, you know, you get to see and, and, and use. So. And we're all used to like reading screenplays, but like when you're given, when, when you're going in to talk about a music video, what are you usually given? You get a treatment. You often get a treatment from the director. Like how long would a treatment generally run? Depends, but like anywhere from like five to 15 pages, but, but you know, it's mostly pictures and it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like a lookbook with then the description of what's going to, um, you know, be in the video, whether, you know, broken out into each verse or chorus and all that, you know, um, what the director's vision is with with a ton of pictures. So usually you have that and then you use that as a, um, as a guide. And sometimes I'll pull my own images. You know, there's certain directors that are really into lighting or have a vision for lighting, but other times um, if they don't, then I'll try to pull my own images to, you know, augment their treatment as well. Do you do like a, an abbreviated version of your uh, Bible that you make for a movie for, for a shorter form project? Sometimes. I mean, I think if, if it's, uh, if it's something that's, uh, very complicated or, or technically uh, difficult. 
uh, or something. Oftentimes, it's really if I feel that I need to show the crew something rather than just tell them, then I'll put it into a visual sense. Because I, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, especially with music videos, like on a movie, well, not on all movies. It's funny because so like the last movie I did, I used the visual Bible and it was a great tool. And, but, you know, I did also have the gaffer on an extended amount of prep and I was able to work with them. But, you know, I did a Blumhouse movie, which was part of the End of the Dark series called Culture Shock, where they move the DP, the director and the AD from one movie to the next. But the crew is already on another movie. So I prepped that whole movie with the crew on the previous movie. So oh, wow. I really was, you know, I, I made sure that I took all my images and tried to put together one of those lookbooks and like a mini Bible version so that I could basically, you know, hand it to them so that they could quickly look at it and understand what I wanted to go for while they were at lunch or after work, (laughs) you know, because they basically went from one job, had half a day off and then ended up tech scouting on my job. Oh, really? Yeah, how much much prep was on that on on the like how many weeks between the actual shoot parts of those of those films? Oh, like, well, the one that I did, they it was like four days or something no way yeah i mean basically they finished a job they tech scouted with me then i think the next day um and then we i think they did a load in it was and i don't know whatever it was and then there maybe had a weekend off and then we shot the next week wow yeah it was pretty crazy so anyway I, i try to do those whenever i can um, just to make sure that they understand that people can see what what i want to do but for me it's like i i, I like you know i do like spontaneity and i do like to just kind of figure things out on set sometimes um with people i don't want to like you know i don't want to make it sound like i just put everything down and it has to be this way it's not like that it's just it's more i just don't like to leave things to chance in terms of communication if, if i can communicate it i want to communicate it then everybody's on the same page and then we can all change it together rather than just like being discombobulated and, and yeah well I and, and i also feel like a lot of times that that level of preparation is sort of the first pass like it's it's version one of of, of your idea and version two is maybe the one you shoot yeah <laughs> you know so but you can't you can't have a ver- you know you can't improve upon an idea that you didn't already make in the first place so having that level of preparation is uh is, is pretty amazing i just can't imagine going into a project without thinking about what you want to do and really having a, a, a vision for it and, and and then communicating it to everybody else. I, I mean, I guess, the, you know, there's different kinds of DPs. There's DPs that get on set and tell the gaffer, I would like a sky panel here. I would like a 20K out the window. I would like this. But that's not me. I mean, to me, this is a everybody's in it to be creative. So to me, it's more about, OK, here's my vision. Here's what I like. Here, here are all the things you need to then go make a decision. I may say I want some sunlight coming through, but I'm not going to tell them what unit to put. So I feel like if I can put something on paper that communicates uh, the feel of what I want, then as an artist, they can help make some decisions <laughs> to um, make it better and, and you know, maybe think of something that I wouldn't have thought of. Your work ethic is fascinating, and and also kind of. And I know that we always talk about how we don't talk tech, but I, I I'm fascinated with your use of technology for preparation. Which even though if someone's listening to this five years from now, maybe all the programs have changed or whatever, the apps are different. But uh, can you talk about you know you already talked about Keynote and Shot Designer, Vimeo. Are there any other like software technology kind of things that you find uh, are helpful for you, either in terms of landing the, the jobs or doing the jobs? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The other day, a producer said to me, he's like, yeah, I don't understand why uh, everybody, like all these people need kit rentals for their computers because it's just something you need. But he's like, 
you should get a kit rental for sure for your phone. <laughs> because on my phone, it's like I, I, I just sold, I mean, obviously I usually get a PL director's viewfinder, but yeah. when I'm scouting all, I don't have it. I just sold my like Mark V, Alan Gordon, you know, analog viewfinder I because yeah. I use Artemis all the time. I mean, it's an unbelievable tool. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, tech wise on my phone, I, I like to use Cinescope, I use uh, Artemis. What's Cinescope? Uh, it's just a cool app that allows you to frame for different aspect ratios so mm -hmm. like if i don't really care about the exact lens if it's too early in the process or i'm scouting but i know that i'm doing a movie and it's going to be 240 and we're just doing like maybe i'm with the director on early director scouts i may just pull out cinescope and take 240 pictures um not really caring about the actual lens or you know even just for um you know just regular uh, scout photos just because i want that aspect ratio i don't have to cut it down later so and artemis is that program that allows you to basically get basically the same crop factor or whatever so yeah it's just basically it's it's really just a director's viewfinder which is mm -hmm. awesome which is which is something you you know i use on a scout i also use it um on set sometimes where you know if i'm doing a big steadicam one or we'll give it to the steadicam operator on my last movie i said you know let's record this so they record the um rehearsal and then i'll have vtr i'll just transfer my dropbox have them upload it they throw it onto a monitor next to it we can see you know we can we can watch it and i can see kind of what the rehearsal look like as we're kind of building the shot i mean i use oh wow i use technology I, I use it all the time i mean i i love i love all these different apps i mean I use helios for um for the sun path i mean i'm any I, any app that I see, I'll buy it. I don't care if it's five bucks or whatever. It's <laughs> worth the shot to try to. I remember Artemis was like the first app I ever saw that was like thirty five. Yeah, that one's expensive, a, but that one's definitely worth it. I mean, yeah. it's it's an unbelievable. Th yeah, those ones, that one and Helios are, are pretty expensive. And there's other ones. I mean, I have a million of them. There's there's like that new CineLens app. I think it's like ten bucks. But you mm -hmm. can t every lens you need, you can find um, very quickly. Uh, a all the focal lengths, and all the lenses, but most importantly, like the minimum focus and. You know, oh really? The, yeah, it's like there's. I could go on forever about all the different uh, technology and apps. I love that stuff. And I don't get bogged down with it, but I just like to have it to be able to use it when I need it to make my job easier. Well, kind of what you're saying is a very attractive way to work where it, it's easy if you have a binder full of stuff to like leave it you know, at the last set or whatever, like you don't, you spend a lot of time looking forward or trying to decipher your notes that you uh, scribbled down in great haste, but to have something that, you know, you could have on your phone or you could have on an iPad that just kind of lives with you the whole time. And it's easy to find it, you know, to me, that's, uh, that that's very liberating. And, and I think it's, again, something uh, probably a lot of our listeners would be interested in, in knowing how to do. It, it is. And, and I'll go back to something I heard Ilya say in a podcast before. It's like, you know, what part of, what is it? What part plumber and what part, uh, artist, artist right? are you? So, yeah. I mean, to me, I think that when you're in prep, I feel like I'm 75% plumber and 25% artist a lot yeah. of times. But because I try to use the technology or at least um, try to be as prepared as I can, write everything down, then I feel like when I get on set, it's, it flip-flops. And then I get to be 75% artist and 25% plumber because I've yeah. done all the plumbing. I've done all the work. <laughs> and it's all there. And so you just have to, you know, you just have to look at it and, and just remind yourself. But it's the more you write it down, the more you have it, the more you've thought about it, the more you've talked about it. It's all in your head. You have the backup, but now you just get to you get to be an artist. That's cool. That's that's really good to hear. Let's uh, let's talk. I mean, you have so many things, and we could we could go into great detail. But uh, you have a new film called The Last Full Measure, which is awesome and has just like a murderer's row of amazing uh, actors in it. And and uh, uh, right right down to uh, like you you've got Bradley Whitford, and you're doing the Steadicam moves on Bradley Whitford. And I'm like, do you feel how how sore can he does it feel to be doing that? Oh, it, it absolutely. 
felt very Sorkin-y. And it was amazing to be doing it with, like, with him. And you're yeah. just like, this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy who you know you, the walk the walk and talk steadicam guy. Oh, it's unbelievable! And and when you're doing it too, it's like you know he's got an idea or hey we could do this and it's like of course yeah. So it's <laughs> his specialty you know, is walk and talk. Yeah, we did one cra- really fun walk and talk. It's supposed to be the bottom of the Pentagon with uh, Bradley and Sebastian Stan. It actually goes up this um, I don't know it's like a big incline. It's going yeah. up like two stories almost, but it's it's all on um, flat pathways. So we were able to put the steadicam on a uh, rickshaw have a light on it what? and we had like three grips like pulling them and we did this like long whatever it is couple minute wonder with him and mm. it was uh it was pretty awesome and, and it wasn't even intended to be a wonder at the beginning but we were at the end of the day and it was the last scene and then we had to get it done and it became a wonder and to me it's one of my favorite <laughs> shots in the whole movie is it is there pressure when you're doing something that's like so identifable with that guy to be like i'm gonna outsource and sorkin on this i'm gonna no, I'm gonna <laughs> I don't think you can outsource push through it. the keyhole no, or something. I wish that was the case. No, <laughs> no, but we did. I mean, we you know obviously you know you have Bradley Whitford in the movie, but there was also an intent with that movie to move the camera with the Steadicam, try to move as much as possible. And and obviously West Wing's a great uh, example. I think that like there's some cool scenes in Argo where they really move the camera well, where they're walking through the CIA building. So we wanted to do that and we wanted to get those shots because I feel like, you know, it, it was part of the character. It's like, you know, he's got this guy who's a, a hustle and bustle and always on the move. And then, you know, he's going to meet up with these uh, vets and talk about some really real shit. And at that point you're going to slow down and you're going to stop and you know, yeah. he's going to listen and the camera's going to stop and it's, it's not going to move like that. So the juxtaposition of those uh, two things were something that was very appealing to us. So like, tell me how, how, uh, how you ended up uh, working on this uh, project and, and sort of like, what was your pitch to the director when you came on board? Well, I'd worked with the director on a movie before this called Phantom mm-hmm. and we got along well and the movie turned out you know, visually, you know, I'm very proud of it. I think it turned out really good. And so um, right when we were done with that, he had sent me the script and it was just, I mean, it's an unbelievable script. And even from the beginning, he had had the movie set up like 10 years earlier. Uh, I think Aaron Eckert was going to play uh, the Sebastian Stan character mm-hmm. and it was going to have Morgan Freeman and it was had all these oh, big wow. actors in it. So it always had big actors. So for me, it was like, okay, you got a great script and you have a potentially amazing cast uh, okay, yes, sign me up. And <laughs> and I was like, and for me, that's like a career maker, or you hope it is. And I always wanted to make the movie, but it, it just like any other, I think, independent movie now, it, it took at that point another six years to get made. And from my standpoint, or at least from, for me, it took a lot of work, a lot of free time and free work going on. You know, I went, I went to a couple different scouts, went to Charleston, South Carolina. We were going to shoot the movie. Um, I went, you know, a couple times to Atlanta, even before the movie was funded, I was on payroll. I would go with the director on the director scouts. And I put in a lot of time to try to help get the movie made because, you know, if it wasn't for my relationship with the director, uh, there's no way that I would get hired in my position to be on a movie with this caliber of actors. So for me, it was, I, I was always going to do anything I could to, to be involved. And, and, and it's got a pretty wide palette of, of looks going on in it. And it's got a lot of different, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's got like a war component. That's like a period yeah. war, war thing. It's got, you know, kind of this modern, modern day stuff. It's got a lot of like, you know, strong, like you were saying, kind of still character work, like, you know, the Samuel Jackson stuff. It doesn't feel like a hodgepodge at all it 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 fits together but kind of talk about how you how you kind of brought all these looks together and how do you make them cohere 
Yeah, I mean, the thing about the, this movie is, well, first off, there's a bunch of stuff that takes place in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the Vietnam was always, you know, these uh, fragmented memories of these soldiers from years later remembering um, what happened so that the lead character can piece together, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, the mystery of what happened, why yeah. this guy didn't get his due, why he only got the Air Force Cross and didn't get the Medal of Honor. Um, so the Vietnam in itself, it, it you know, you say it's like, it's not necessarily a hodgepodge, but it's not like these full drawn out scenes. They're these fragmented memories. And it was always intended to be that because a, there's no reason to try to remake Apocalypse Now or Platoon. I mean, all that's been done. I mean, yeah. we never set out to make a Vietnam War movie. This isn't that. But you've got some glorious, like, helicopter oh, shots. We, and... it, it's awesome. And, like, 99% of it is all practical. I mean, there's, there's, there's visual effects in it, but it's all just enhancement. I mean, all the helicopters were real. Everything, wow. everything we did was real. Where'd you shoot that stuff? That was shot in Thailand. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really cool. And, and, and it was, you know, that was... Sometimes at least three cameras, if not five or six at one time. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, you know, one handheld in a helicopter, one in another helicopter over the Huey, uh, three cameras on the ground shooting at the same time. And it was it was pretty intense. But yeah, there's 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 the Vietnam component to it. And then there's the stuff that takes place in 1999 with the uh, older vets mm-hmm. and you know the idea was always to have uh, th- them you know I, I wanted them to juxtapose each other and the director and I you know always thought about the fact that you know it would be handheld and and it would be uh, frenetic and the idea is that the, 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 it's these guys memories and so um, we, we wanted a desaturated color palette and we just wanted it to be definitely set itself apart so when you saw it you know you knew exactly where you were and then the stuff that takes place in washington dc and takes place in uh, ohio and all the stuff in the u.s was definitely shot a little bit differently um i, I wanted that uh, you know that that's a little more i kind of i really wanted it to be a classic movie I, my, the big thing for me was to not have the cinematography call attention to itself because mm-hmm. i feel like if you said if you if you get done with this movie and you're like oh the cinematography is amazing then i didn't really do my job so, you know, it's, it's, it took place in 1999. I feel like now when I try to think of a movie, like I'm trying to think of the iPhone version. And I, in this case, I want to make the flip phone version. It's like, I, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be like really glitzy and over stylized. Cause I felt yeah. like that was going to hurt the story. And you had these amazing actors. You just wanted to sit with them and hear well, their yeah, story. And, and I mean, we mentioned Bradley Whitford and Samuel L. Jackson, but there's also like William Hurt and, um, Christopher Plummer, um, Yep, John Savage from Deer Hunter, and there's, um, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 it's, it, it, well, not to mention Diane Ladd, who's a yeah. wonderful actress, um, and uh, a newcomer, Allison Sudol, who's uh, fantastic as well. So yeah, we have all kinds. Of, I mean, it, like everybody is somebody in this movie. It's, it was, it, it was an incredible cast. Well, and, and I'm taking this from what you maybe implied, so I could be wrong about this, but I'm gathering that this doesn't have the budget of like the giant Hollywood version of this kind of movie necessarily. So when you're working with, uh, you know, like all of these amazing actors, did that make scheduling weird or did, did, did you have to kind of break up scenes or were there just like windows of opportunity to work with these people? Yeah. I mean, yes, this movie 
definitely, you know, it's not a 50 or $60 million movie, which a lot of these, you know, yeah. or hundred million or whatever, you know, big budget. I movies mean, even the big budget for. movies, I know one of the guys who executive produced one of the X-Men movies and he was telling me that the biggest nightmare of it was just scheduling the actors. Cause yeah. like Hugh Jackman would be doing a play in England. And yeah, this was the same thing. I mean, it's like it, it, you, you have Samuel Jackson for a couple days. You have Ed Harris for a couple days. You know, you have these guys for a very limited amount of time. They do all end up in a scene at the end of the movie. And so most of the actors, we were able to schedule it so that they were there for that scene. Mm. And then other ones, like Ed Harris wasn't there, so we shot him separately and, and um, you know, just you, you cut seamlessly as he's in the audience. And so, um, but yes, scheduling them was, was probably the most difficult thing on this movie because, you know, number one, um, we had to go back to some locations a couple times. We had to definitely work around their schedules. Um, but most importantly, too, it's like we... If you had an actor, you had to shoot them. I mean, there's a scene in the diner with Samuel Jackson, and we found out that morning um, I, I had had this vision for the scene where I wanted uh, sunlight and big lights through the windows. They were all pre-rigged. Everything was there. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, you can't use the generator because there's lightning. So, um, so that morning, I was like, okay, let's get some uh, marine batteries. Because they also, for some reason, the location wouldn't let us plug in. So we got marine batteries, used sky panels. Luckily, we'd already switched out all the fluorescence over top. But we basically shot that scene with like a couple sky panels and oh, wow. marine batteries because we didn't have a choice. It was like, <laughs> you're not, you know, you got to shoot with them when you got them there. So there was a few situations where, you know, stuff like that happened where you just, you had to shoot and you didn't have a choice. You'd make it work. And I, I'm not comparing it to this to this kind of a thing, but uh, somebody was telling me recently about these lower budget movies that get uh, actors like Bruce Willis to be in them. And they shoot kind of at a leisurely pace and then they have to shoot 30 pages of Bruce Willis in one day. Did you find yourself uh, with any of those actors? Like, was it was it like when when you were working with the you know the actors who were who were the main characters was it a different pace and then when you know was it just a narrow window of time that you had with those people and you had to like pre-plan to work very very fast with them or to it go, wasn't that get same, through more pages it wasn't that same situation well i mean basically we always had to move quickly yeah and you know we had sebastian there who's basically on loan from marvel and yeah. so we everybody and he's in almost every scene so everybody we had all the time was pretty busy so we were always at a you know we there wasn't any leisurely days but no it wasn't a situation where you had sam jackson in there and then you just had to you know shoot an, an ungodly amount of pages yeah. it wasn't that it wasn't like we're shooting 40 pages with him in it in different locations trying to piece it together it was all set up so that you know they were we were shooting proper scenes with those actors when they were supposed to be there yes we would have liked another day with them or two or more time I mean, you always want more time but that's the thing too is you got samuel jackson and when he, he when you turn the camera on he nails it and yeah. he's, it's like you know you could do a few more takes but sometimes you really don't need any more time because he's so good and and a lot of those other actors were exactly the same way that's great to hear that's great to hear i i, I we don't usually uh, fetishize like the schedule but like about how many days are we talking about to to make a film uh, I, i'm only asking because the scope of this movie is enormous yeah it's slightly less than 30 days we made what? this movie yeah it was too quick it was crazy it was it was really crazy but <laughs> in three countries too oh my god so it was uh it was pretty uh it was pretty intense 
in the end, it's, you know, it's what you got to do to get those those actors and that cast and get a movie like this made. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I've heard other DPs talk about this and, you know, it's just there's not a lot of these uh, dramas and, and yeah. movies like this being made and you just don't have the choice. It's either these huge uh, action movies or these super, super really small movies. Yeah, yeah. Or it, horror movies. It is kind of a bummer. Uh, yeah, because like, you know, a movie like A Few Good Men to go back to the Sorkin canon, you know, those kinds of movies, you, we just don't see those very often anymore. I think that's a that's a really great place to leave it. Where can people find your work? I assume you have the most up-to-date website of anyone that we've ever spoken to. I do keep my website pretty up-to-date. It's, <laughs> it's actually directorphotography.net, which I got like 20 years ago. And I don't know how it I, happened, I but I have it. I can't benrock.com, and you have directorphotography.net. That's I, amazing. I do, I do. And then I'm on Instagram at ByronWernerDP. Cool. Well, thank you so much. It was amazing having you in here. Thank you. I had a great time. So that was Byron Warner. Everybody check out The Last Full Measure, which opens on January 24th in movie theaters. That's right. It's going to be, uh, in fact, actually, I think in L.A. It might be doing some advanced screenings right now or maybe starting on the 23rd. I, I, I Google in front of me is showing me, like, do I want to buy tickets to it right now? All right. Well, yeah, check it out. I mean, it's uh, yeah, we, we've seen it. It's pretty, pretty impressive stuff. And uh, Byron is, uh, I think, uh, a serious inspiration and probably one of the hardest working motherfuckers we've ever spoken to. You know, and and thanks again, Byron, if you hear this, for signing my cool phantom poster here where you wrote, uh, thanks, best camera shop ever. That was uh, pretty sweet. That was everyone at Hot Rod Cameras. Thanks you very much for uh, for signing our cool poster. So, uh, Ilya, I hear it's time for us to pay those bills. That's right. Time to pay the bills. Hey, I want to talk about. Aperture. Aperture is a great friend of the show. They do really incredible stuff. Last time we mixed up our 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 sponsor read with them a little bit because they did this cool community event and brought in hundreds of people, which was awesome. Uh, I want to go back and talk about. I would say instead of mixed up, I would say enhanced. Enhanced, yeah, like enhanced interrogations. <laughs> it's not a regular interrogation. It's an enhanced interrogation. All right. So, okay. Anyway, uh, but but that is a little bit about what I want to talk about. I want to talk about enhancing. Aperture's cool flagship products like the 300D Mark II and the 120D. These are some very, very bright LED lights, extremely popular with people. uh, And affordable. And affordable. uh, But there is a way to enhance the light. And one of the ways you enhance it is with a two times Fresnel. The Fresnel 2X basically clips right into the front of that light and then greatly intensifies the light and gives it the Fresnel treatment, which is a little bit punchier in the center, a little bit nice fall off, but it's zoomable too. And you can control then how far your spread is with this. And it's a really, really nice piece of gear that will fit on uh, all of the aperture uh, Bowens mount lights. That That's they pretty sweet. So how much is it? How much is the aperture Fresnel 2X, uh, you ask? Well, right now it's going for $119. That's online. a great deal. It is a great deal. It looks like it's slightly reduced in price. It looks like uh, they're typically one little bit more but hey available at hot rod cameras in stock we got a massive shipment of aperture stuff so if you need an aperture light a two times fresnel or any of the other cool things hit up hot rod cameras and if you mention the podcast when you call us and place an order maybe you'll get a free shirt or hat free shirt and just remember byron warner Noted DP called this the best camera shop ever. That's true. He didn't. He, say he it. wasn't messing. He didn't around. actually just call it that. He wrote it down right he, there on he that wrote poster. It down on a poster yeah. of a movie that he shot. That's right, hanging here prominently in our conference room. So please, uh, yeah, and it and it definitely helps the podcast if you uh, if you if you purchase that stuff from Hot Rod Cameras. Absolutely, keep keeps this keeps this happening. Keeps the roof over us. Keeps the light the lights burning. 
the gaslight. And now, short ends. All right. So, uh, Ben, what what is uh, it's short end time? What is your short end? So my uh, my my pet obsession for the week actually is uh, I kind of blew it in in our opening uh, conversation when I was talking about Canopy, which Canopy actually had been one of my short ends like year two years ago. But Canopy, which is a movie service that you can get in most of the country, I think for free with a library card. You just have to go to their website, Canopy with a K. Sign up for their service with your library card number, and then if you have a smart TV with Roku or whatever, you can download the app and uh, and and start watching movies. They give you like ten movie credits a, a month, I think. So it's limited in a way that Netflix isn't, but it's also free. Mm. So whatever. But I recently found that they added all of the, or not all of, but a significant a chunk of the great courses. And I was watch, I was watching one actually on, uh, on drawing and they bring in, you know, like it, these are like serious professors who teach for real college level classes. You want to learn how to draw at, at huge universities? Yeah, 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 nice, not bad. And um, they're on every topic. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you've probably heard them advertised on other podcasts. I know they are on the Skeptics Guide to the Universe, which is a podcast I listen to every week. Uh, they're constantly advertised on there, and it was like, you know, if if you're to buy the courses individually, a lot of them I think are like 120 bucks or something like that. Uh, you can sign up for a subscription on their website, binge, but binge, binge. but yeah. you can also just get it for free on Canopy with a library card. And you know, you kind of go, well, I don't have a library card. I don't know about your library, but I I didn't have a library card before I had Canopy. Uh, and in order to get Canopy, I went to my library and I was in there for under five minutes before I walked out with a library card. I just needed my driver's license and Bob's your uncle. I had a library card, then I had Canopy that night. So uh, so I, I, it's not technically a cinematography or filmmaking thing, although there are plenty of film classes on there. There was uh, I saw some screenwriting classes on there. I saw some amazing photography classes. Like I think that you can find a lot of stuff that would pertain to what we are talking about here. But if you just want to expand your horizons as a human being, I think it's pretty cool. You know, uh, I love online educational type of stuff. I will say that I I have an equal amount though of uh, loathing for bad YouTube instructions. Oh, for sure. And. I think everyone knows what they're getting into when they get the YouTube instructions for no matter what, what it might be. It's generally not taught by someone who is an expert. It's taught by someone who's an amateur who figured it out. And I, I know before we got on, uh, had this conversation, I was saying I watched a YouTuber uh, explain how to do something in Premiere. And it was not that they understood necessarily what things were based on the words they were saying, but they were saying like, you push this button here. That button does can the I solution. Can I tell you my, my pet peeve about even the, even the highest end people who do tutorials? Yeah. Because... You know, whenever I find myself in a position where I'm like, how the hell do I do this in After Effects? How do I do this in Premiere? I'll go on YouTube and see who's already done a tutorial on it to save myself. Like, hey, I need to make, you know, fake sparks for After Effects or whatever. And like my biggest pet peeve is they will show you every step up to the thing that you want to do very slowly. That's right. I'm going to launch a project. I'm going to make it. And then when it gets to your step, they're going to blast past it like it was nothing so and it's like look obviously if i'm asking you how to do high level stuff in after effects or premiere 
I know how to launch Premiere. I know how to create a project. I don't need nine minutes of finding out what Premiere is. Exactly. I don't. I don't need. I lay no pipe. Say like, okay, I'm in a project. Here, here's the dimensions of the project, and go. And to me, it's something that I'm always frustrated with whenever I'm looking for for stuff like that. And it's one of the things I appreciate about. And I know we've talked about him on the podcast before, Andrew Kramer at Video Copilot, who doesn't do enough tutorials anymore, probably because he's too busy working. But if it wasn't for him. Uh, I wouldn't know doodly squat about After Effects myself. And uh, the the guy from Jojo Rabbit, who was the uh, VFX supervisor that we interviewed, he actually credited Andrew Kramer. But I feel like like he gets he does tutorials really really right in that he gets you right into the nut meat of what you're there to learn. Yeah, uh, I said nut meat. <laughs> I I think that uh, the people who are in the professional tutorial space they do that really well. But yes, there are also a lot of uh, hacky schmoes. Who, schmoes who, who just go and, ahead and, do and you know it. that's kind of like why you might invest in one of those things is so that you get that really good education and you know there's a, a there's a ton of good uh i will say good but i think there's a, an equal number of probably mediocre and probably 10 times as many bad training courses for video or video production or yeah. lighting or color grading or, or you name it uh dear listeners please let us know what you like i yeah, like, are your favorites yeah i would like to know where you get your information, whether it's YouTube or a paid class. You know what I like? They don't go into this much detail about cinematography, or they haven't yet, but I'm a big fan of Masterclass. I think Masterclass does it really well. Nice, yeah. Uh, Well, maybe that's an opportunity for them, then. Maybe maybe cinematography will will be their next uh, go-round. Yeah, we'll get, uh, yeah. I, I I was about to like don't n- say it. name a name of a cinematographer don't say teaches it. it, and I'm like, no, I can't do that because yeah. yeah, we love them all. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so uh, so okay. what is what is your pet obsession this week? You know, my pet obsession is a little bit interesting. I was talking to a very successful uh, high end DP client customer uh, of our shop the other day, and uh, he was talking about going out and shooting like this little freebie thing, and I was like really you're going out and shooting a freebie just because you have so much spare time when you're not like going to big fancy award shows and black ties <laughs> and things like that. And it was like, yeah, well I just wanted to, to get out and, and do this thing. And it gives me a chance to experiment with essentially no consequences. When I go do a little freebie for a friend or a friend asks me to do this, I know I can get it done, but I can also, here's my opportunity to do, try something like with complete freedom and essentially no repercussions. And, uh, yeah, because the repercussions could be on uh, something very, very large. You have to be extra controlled, and this is like a chance to play around. And now I'm just dying to know who this is, so I can ask them for a free favor. Go on. <laughs> anyway, to me, that's kind of wonderful, and I feel like if you uh, are really into your job and you're really into your craft and what it is that you're doing, uh, the education process never stops, and you can absolutely go and keep your tool sharp by going at your own pace and having access to uh, a network of people who might just be uh, other people who are not necessarily making a bunch of money out of it, out of whatever the, the, the project is, but a way that you can uh, have a camaraderie of people all trying to help each other to uh, achieve a goal. When you can have a set like that, when it's all high level people who know what they're doing and don't mind going out and helping each other, what a, what a wonderful thing. I don't know what the, the best name is for that sort of, um, that sort of gathering or group. I'm going to go with friends. Friends. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. That is what it is. They are friends. Your short end is friends. My short end this, this week is friends. So <laughs> yeah, not, so, not the show friends. It's so great. With to Courtney have Cox. <laughs> Somebody told you that it wouldn't be this don't, way. Never, never, never sing again. <laughs> um. I don't even know what the words are. It was so many, so many years ago. And frankly, I didn't really watch the show. Anyway, regardless. Never, I've never seen an episode. 
episode. You've never seen an episode? It's one. been on in my living room. Certain certain members in my household definitely watched it. So uh, yeah. Anyway, so I think it's pretty amazing that you have friends, you go out and you continue to do stuff for your friends and your friends do stuff for you. So Well, you know, we've we've named the short uh I mean the close focus segment after George Foyt who suggested it, but George is kind of my guy for that. Your friend. He's my friend. <laughs> We're friends. He's your actual friend. Like, like we, someone you know we and hang out and we go to his house for barbecues and stuff. Whoa. But also he's an amazing cinematographer and I love working with him and uh when I have a budget to hire him, I I bring him on board. You have built him up so high now. When he when he comes on this show, he's, he's gonna screwed. Yeah, he's uh, he's done. He's screwed. No, but uh, when I'm doing jag off little stupid garbage like ooh jag off stupid garbage like yes, like, like my beloved web series Twenty Seconds to Live. That's like my you've, you've never mentioned this. Show. I've never mentioned it. But when I'm doing stuff like that, like George is willing to come out and help me out with that stuff, and it makes a huge difference because I want stuff to look good, and it also gives him an opportunity sometimes to try a technique he hasn't tried before. You know do you know. Uh, try a camera system or whatever like you know on one of them we used uh, a, a Canon 5D with that uh, what was that software that the hack on the 5D 5D to RGB no oh uh, Magic Lantern Magic Lantern yeah yeah yes. Kay Zalatrachi, our our fine composer, <laughs> convinced us to use his 5D Mark III with Magic Lantern and we shot uh, one of the episodes on there and uh, it was an interesting process. Got to learn. Yeah, yeah learn walk in the too. park, eh? Yeah. No, yeah. no problems whatsoever. Zero problems with <laughs> Magic Lantern. It was like it was like it, it was you know the camera was meant to be that way. Uh, uh you know the episode came out looking great. So oh, what do I care? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of K's, we should probably thank him because we've reached uh, we've reached that time again. So yeah, we'll start with thanking K's, which usually usually he's buried in the thanks. But uh, thank you, K's. There is some percentage chance that you heard this episode, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna say two percent. K's, uh, who composed all of the music that you've heard in the episode, uh, can be found at musicbyk's.com. Let's thank our intrepid. I called Ben Katz intrepid last time, so let's let's call him something else. We'll say our uh, fantastic editor Ben Katz. Exemplary. Exemplary. Editor Ben Katz. Thank you, Ben, for making us sound not stupid. That's that's not easy. No, not easy at all. I'm from Florida. (laughs) Florida man over here. All right. Uh, Actually, I think Orlando is kind of like its own place. It's not even Florida. Uh, You say that, but yeah, when I leave. Winter Park. Yeah. Yeah. Winter (laughs) Park is nice. Okay. And then, of course, we would be remiss if we did not thank our producer, Alana Cody. Alana Cody, who is really kicking ass in every possible way. And uh, how many weeks in a row have we had a brand new episode out now? I don't know. A lot. I think we and we've it's, also it's, we, it's we like, stopped counting, but we have, I know we've for, surpassed episode 70 at some point. But, too. but I think we've had like over 40 episodes in like per week without, oh, yeah. without it without a week off. Oh, yeah, that's that's totally and, true. And that is Alana's doing 100 percent. Yeah, we're uh, we're rapidly heading towards uh, 52 weeks on. So I think we're getting close. Crazy. I know. All right. Well, that wraps us up and we will see you next week, next week, next for week. real uh, at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.